If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Uh, hi everyone uh, and welcome to uh, the second gig of this tour. Third, I think. Third yeah. gig? Yeah, yeah. Third, okay. Are there more planned? Uh, yeah, I think we're going to go coast to coast. Excellent. And maybe one in Manchester, Nottingham. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. Okay, um, so um, I thought we would uh, kick off by um, talking a bit about how this book came to be. Well, I mean, they all started as uh, pieces to the LRB or City Journal, but um, when the idea came up of putting them in the book, I picked ones that seemed to have a uh, common link, common themes. And, um, I mean, there were pieces on Patti Smith, uh, Kate Bush, David Barry that could also have been included, but they didn't seem to have the same uh, echoes as these ones. And uh, the more I looked at them, the more they had seemed to have two or three things in common. One, they were about white musicians who'd been, whose lives had been uh, massively affected by black culture and black music, uh, or black musicians who'd had problems with white culture. And... As well as that, there seemed to be almost uh, a hidden autobiography under it, uh, mm. which at the time I really didn't notice. Mm. Um, even now it's hard to notice. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's deeply, deeply buried in camouflage, but I do think it is there. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, a story of how I was changed by black culture and mm-hmm. black music and stuff, uh, again, massively and uh, unpredictably and, um, you know, yeah. I wouldn't be writing. I wouldn't be writing about music at all if it wasn't for people like Charlie Parker and uh, '70s soul music and Prince. Mm-hmm. And I'd be off to art college and I'd be <laughs> famous painter now, and I'd have a lot more money. Oh, I don't know about that. But here we are. Because yeah. <laughs> um, these are these are all um, ostensibly uh, uh, book reviews, right? But they seem to take what. You know the, the form of, of what we understand by what a book review is, and sort of levitate out of it and become something else. I wonder if you like. Do, do you think of what of, the, of um, yourself as writing within like a certain form, or or, or not? Is that? Um, well, I suppose to to compare it to um, say someone in a book like Bill Evans, who mm-hmm. or any of the jazz musicians, you're given certain songs. Uh, certain standards to improvise with and uh, the songs or standards may not may or may not be 
great. They may or may not be complex. They may or may not be to your taste, but it's what you're given. And uh, within that, you, you try and sound out. I mean, you try and make your own soundings, I think, mm-hmm. of what's there. You try and hear other things in it. You try and uh, insinuate yourself into it. And um, I mean, I've done, I've done quite a lot of book reviews before, but they'd been weekly book reviews or, you know, they'd only taken a week to do or, or whatever. Um, the nice thing about this uh, is you can take your time. Um, uh, you can take months or, in the case of the Prince piece, years. <laughs> uh, I almost felt like I was in my own decline, like Prince, you know, because it took like three years almost to do. But, um, uh-huh. yeah, it's not that I had a form in mind. It was more... Um, I was just very lucky that years and years I had of listening and reading yeah. uh, finally had a, a chance uh, to be let out in a sense to play I think yeah. uh, you know because uh, it's all right being a it's all right being a freelance journalist when you're young I think when you're young and punchy and can run around and uh, but you get to a certain age and you know doing something in three or four days two three four days I just couldn't do it anymore Mm-hmm. And as I say in the book, I nearly gave up, in fact, because, yeah. you know, it's just, uh, I just couldn't do that anymore. Uh, it's not fair to uh, the material, it's not fair to me. It's not, there's a quote in the Charlie Parker essay where it says, uh, he's brilliant at a certain one thing that he does, but he gets boxed in. You learn how to use certain muscles, but you never learn how to use other muscles. You get... Um, you don't learn how to pace yourself. You don't mm. learn how to... And that was the way I felt with, uh, with freelance writing, in a sense. You, know, you get brilliant at, at instant response. Uh, but deeper things about reflection you mm. know, uh, are not possible in that sort of time frame. So this is just, you know, it was partly luck, partly uh, my years of obsession and study paying off, I yeah. guess. Yeah. You mentioned already um, about the kind of, uh, I guess, the process of compiling the essays into the book being, well, revealing things, I guess. And you've, you've mentioned about this kind of like united theme of um, the kind of cross-pollination of, of cultures. Um, and I, th- I think that's one of the real pleasures of the book is, is you know, these, these essays that sort of come at you intermittently suddenly being delivered in one stack and reading through them and seeing these sort of like latent, uh, latent undercurrents that, that, are, that are coming through that you keep returning to uh, time and time again. Um, and you mentioned also that, the, that you noticed that there were, there were these sort of um, autobiographical elements, sometimes latent, sometimes more explicit coming up. But there seems to be a point in the, well, there is a point in the introduction where you say, "I've tried to write this several times, and I've you know you 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 redact a sort of more explicitly autobiographical section of that." Can you talk a bit of that about that? Well, I didn't know why anyone would want to read my autobiography, basically, but uh. um, and it was a surprise to me a lot of the autobiographical stuff. You right. know, it wasn't it wasn't immediately obvious to me until, in fact, I reread them for this book, you know, and proofed them. And um, I was really surprised and almost shocked. Right. There were certain lines that just seemed to... I mean, no one else would see it, but I saw it, you know, like the Charlie Parker one I just mentioned. And um, there's, there's several... There's a thing about, about... In the mod essay about Bill Evans, where I, I write about Bill Evans, and um, how there was absolute chaos in his private life, but he mm. produced this beautiful, economical, simple music yeah. that... Um, is almost is almost 
on the edge of something banal, mm. but um, within it you hear all these echoes mm. and uh, currents and things that suggest entirely other things. And that, to me, was the, the ideal of, of what you were saying earlier, what formed it. it. I didn't have a form in mind, but my ideal <coughs> would be like Sinatra or Bill Evans, mm. something that's really simple on the surface, apparently simple, yeah. that anyone can listen to or read, mm. um, that, that doesn't put off anyone. But as you get into it, you may hear all these other undercurrents right. and things and echoes. You know, I mean, That's the ideal for me. And, um, yeah, as I say, it was, it was a bit of a shock to me to, to see that all these things had been there, you know, I mean, it, going back to when I was 14 or 15, you know, yeah. especially the Charlie Parker one, and, uh, you know, it's a very odd feeling to see, it's like being in analysis or something, <laughs> you, you think you've said something simple, yeah. but, you know, gosh, you know, it's been there for decades, yeah. you know, it's like... Yeah, and that, 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 the dynamic you're describing between something which on the surface appears either simple or economical or elegant or minimal and um, the kind of chaos underneath, uh, that's something that plays out in all kinds of different ways. Like again and again in the book, um, you talk about being attracted um, particularly to sort of musicians and to writers as well who sort of uh, manage to produce this elegant economical work um, and have you know their, their their backstory, their life story is sort of sort of full of, of, of chaos and, and and strangeness. And you mentioned in the introduction um, about that uh, you feeling that there's something political about that, about that that particular tension. Yeah. I mean, I was interested to know what that was. Or I think that's quite a complicated um, question, and um, I do. I really hope to do a book on Billie Holiday because I think she's the figure behind all this that isn't mm. in the book. And um, I've written about this, although not published it. And uh, uh, that economy, I think, has to do with black people, black musicians in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and how they could communicate anger, deep rage and anger and perplexity in music that was not mm-hmm. apparently full of rage and anger and perplexity. Music that was instead seductive and beautiful and sublime mm. and light and dancing. And um, there's a great quote, uh, I think it's Hilton Arles talking about Billie Holiday, uh, where he's talking about the tradition in black people in America of having good manners. Mm. And I think that, you know, whatever situation you're in, whether you call it cool or manners, at that time you had to watch every word and every action yeah. uh, because you didn't know where it, where it would lead, you know. <coughs> so you develop this kind of mask of... Uh, and that's what a lot of the, like, Billie Holiday stuff. It's beautiful, but you get the sense there's a mask there. And, yeah. you know, why is it... She's not a fantastic singer. She's not technically... But why is it 50, 60, 70... We're still all haunted by it. Mm. There must be a reason there. And I think that's, that's partly what it is, because there's this, there's this undercurrent, there's this um, other, other voice under it, um, mm. which is entirely musical in a sense, because the lyrics don't talk about anger. or yeah. the, So she's insinuating mm. this sense of um, the body into 
this quite banal song and uh, you can listen to she'll sing a happy lyric and it it feels incredibly sad mm. and she can sing a sad song and it feels uplifting mm-hmm. so and in a sense I think that's been deeply uh, undervalued mm-hmm. by music writing yeah because I think a lot of music writing down the years has been about meaning yeah it's like people you know there's this kind of Bob Dylan standard for music writing what does he mean you know, what's he really saying here who cares but it's like um, it's the opposite in that tradition that black tradition which Billy Holiday exemplifies where it's the it's the body and the rhythm and mm-hmm. and the sonics and the texture of it that communicate an other message to what the song seems to be saying mm-hmm. I think and uh, to me that's incredible I think it's incredibly complex and fascinating and it hasn't been given its due I don't mm-hmm. think because mm-hmm. uh. the, the, there is a sense um, reading the book that it feels like a kind of a rebuttal to the ways that sort of the history of pop music in the 20th century has sort of been made made flat and obvious and, and about surfaces and there's there's been a real lack of curiosity about these these undercurrents which are you know the things that that, that you're seeking out and um, as you were putting the book together did it feel like a sort of like attempt at a, a reassessment or a rebuttal or no like not that? no not really no, no. i mean um it was more, I think it would have gone wrong if that had happened. Um, it was more that I gradually saw that, you know, these things which I'd been thinking about for years. And like with Billy Holiday, I've been writing in private about this for years. You know, I've got something, these amount of pages at home about it, which a lot of which is unreadable and which only like eight or nine people in the world would get, I think. Um, but... I had to go through that process. I had to. I've been thinking about it for decades, literally. You know, since the eighties, when I had a, I planned a book in the eighties, which was about singers and song and voice, and that's basically all I've ever written about. I think, in a sense, is voice Mm. and the ghosts that are there and the strangeness of song and singers and why we're haunted by uh, certain voices. And in that book from the eighties, I was there was a. There was an opening essay on Torch Song. There was a huge Billie Holiday essay. There was a Ricky Lee Jones uh, essay. And um, I think to finish, there was (laughs) a a deeply strange uh, thing on Elvis Presley. Right. And uh, as an apocalypse. Right. Uh, (laughs) I, I have no idea. I was young. I was taking a lot of drugs. But it was... <laughs> I've retained the title. I've transferred the title to to this book, which yeah. is the fast birth and slow Oedipal death yeah. of Elvis Aaron Presley. Um, and I, I don't actually like his voice. I've ne- I'd never written about Elvis before before that, uh-huh. and that's the that's the odd one out in a sense because um, I'd, I'd never actually been a fan. Yeah, I could see that he was important. I could see why other people liked him. Like you know, but. The voice did nothing for me, absolutely nothing. So, mm-hmm. But, um, but uh, I did find something in the end. And in the end, I ended up kind of really, really emotionally a feeling for him, you know, because mm. I think he was trapped. And, uh, mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, he was like clawing his way out of this thing, mm. um, but enjoying the fact that he wasn't succeeding. Uh, again, I think it's really 
much more complex than anyone's ever. Yeah. You know. And in that essay, I actually mentioned that uh, I can't remember if I used the quote, the thing about manners, southern manners. Yes. Yeah. Black, yeah. white. It doesn't. You know. There's this tradition of no matter what you're feeling, you put on a smile and say yes, sir. Yeah. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. You know. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned um, the sense of Elvis, uh, you know, being sort of stuck in something and trying to claw his way out of something, and I, th- I think that that comes up with perhaps almost all of the people, the, the artists that you're uh, uh, writing about in this book, um, like this kind of exploration of the forms that a life can take and the the, the power of sort of, um, uh, I guess you get artists kind of creating their own myths and then the myths that are created on their own behalf. Their own behalves, and then the kind of like limitations of the the, the plots that they inhabit. This kind of conflict between, um, you know, like what what are, what are the possibilities within a life, and how much you can do. And it it feels in the end that in the end that so many of them end up not really bending that far from their original orbit. Wow. You know, they all end up in a in a certain kind of position. Yeah, well, I think that was true of um, of Elvis. I mean, it was like. In that sense, a very American life. I think, like Jack Kerouac, is it's it's just a long journey away from the mother and back to the yeah. mother. And I think um, it was the same with Elvis. He was haunted by the, his mother yeah. and haunted by his twin and stuff. And I don't think he went very far at all. He had this huge thing happen to him, which could have been life changing, yeah. and was in material terms. But I don't think he changed one bit in a sense. And it, it's a very odd. Um, very odd life to look at. I'd like to go back to it. In fact, I think there's a lot more mm-hmm. there with with Elvis, but and with Charlie Parker as well. And again, um, we look at these lives because we think they're not that long ago, but the lives they led uh, forty, fifty, sixty were so different. You know, yeah. it was like a, there was no media. There was yeah. no. I mean. LP records have only started being made and so mm. on, you know, there was and certainly in America race relations were just, you know well, abysmal and so on so I think the, um, with Charlie Parker um, it's uh, it's fascinating, I mean I, age has its effect on this as well because when I was younger I idolised and romanticised a life like that yeah Deeply, deeply, and uh, worryingly, and catastrophically uh, <laughs> <laughs> romanticized. Uh, but as you grow older, you know, you, you learn it's not romantic. It's not mm. in the least romantic. You know, it's it's um, it's something else, which doesn't mean that um, to risk some kind of Lacanian <laughs> doesn't mean Go that uh, that kind of chaos and terror and pain isn't a form of pleasure. Right. I think it is. Yeah. And uh, to go back what we were saying before about p- people previously writing about this, mm-hmm. I always had a problem with, with biographies of people like Charlie Parker and, mm-hmm. and Billie Holiday, where you have this kind of tut-tut. Yeah, it's like moralising. Yeah. Mm. Even, you know, um, it's prurient and it's yeah. kind of moralising at the same time and it's, and it's kind of teetering on the edge of, you know... And Nina Simone is another great example. Uh, without trying to understand why this stuff was, was happening. Mm. And also uh, what the pleasure might be in a life like that. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it, it just seems sim- so simplistic in a kind of post-Freudian, post, you know... Um, 
admittedly, things have got a lot better in the last... Te- there's a lot more decent music books now. There's a lot more great writing about music, you know. But when I started thinking about this stuff, you know, I just, I'd read a biography of Billie Holiday and they just get so angry because yeah. it just seems so simplistic, mm. you know. Because you know. the, the book does um, kind of unpack this sort of um, idea of what excess is and that excess... Um, isn't just about a kind of ordinary idea of, of, you know, Dionysian pleasure. I mean, you say, I think in the case of Elvis, that that, um, excess was actually, like, um, really profoundly about control and about managing a self. Um, It's measured out each day, like a little itinerary. There's, like, Charlie Parker and him are, like, complete opposites, you know. Yeah. Uh, And, of course, Elvis didn't think he was taking drugs, you know. He thought he was... Drug drugs, you know, there were yeah, drugs and there were drugs, drugs, you know. Get them from the doctor. Um, and, you know, you'd get it out and you'd take this much, you don't, that, 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 that you know. But, um, which, you know, again, you can be snitty about, but it's not, you know, it's not um, funny or, you know, he, he genuinely believed this. And mm. um, I think he had that attitude towards a lot of things. And uh, um, I think he could have been incredibly good, you know. Mm. It's like the films, the films are so awful. But there are hints that he could have been sublime. And I think the, true, the same is true of music. There's hints at the beginning and hints at the end that he could have been just fantastic. But what we've got is mostly the middle, which isn't mm. fantastic, you know. And, uh, of course, you have to be careful, you know. Um, it's almost like an experiment. Uh, empathise with some of these people. If I'm writing it for months, you know, you can get... Get into them. You know, but you have to maintain a a distance, I think, which... uh, uh, And hopefully... And I think, you know, that they all did amazing things with song. And I think it's almost like a a debt. Mm. You know, it's like I've had these people for all my life now, Mm. you know, and I feel like I should give something back. Do you, you know, like write about the music? Mm -hmm properly you know Mm. and I want to on that note I want to ask about the um, Sinatra piece which uh, uh, I mean people are uh, loving the book all round but um, the Sinatra piece keeps coming up again and again people saying you know you've you've actually caused me to return to this music and hear it again and actually be able to hear it there's there's a a lot of that in the book as well isn't there The, the idea that going back to something which you can't see or hear anymore because it's just quote-unquote iconic or ubiquitous and, and actually listening, actually paying proper attention. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask about, about the writing. Well, that's that my actually. least favourite wor- word in the world is iconic. Yes, uh, I know. Point, <laughs> that's why I said quote-unquote. <laughs> it's the worst word in the world. It's done yeah. more damage, you know, as so many Friday night BBC4 rock documentaries prove. You know, yeah. it's like, you know... Why is he important? Because he's iconic. What it's like a, 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 a circle that never ends, yeah. you know. Why yeah. is he iconic? Because he's important. Why is he important? Because he's iconic. Iconic is literally meaningless, especially when you're talking about something that's about music. Yeah. You know, and, and a sonic thing, and you're saying, well, he's iconic. What does that mean? It's literally meaningless, you know. But, yeah, there's the Sinatra thing, which is the icon of... Hey, cool, blah, 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 yeah. you know, the Rat Pack, Las Vegas, you know, mm. and um, which, you know, it has some importance and so on, but uh, it's very easy to overlook the absolute uh, care he put into his craft, you know, and what an astonishing artist he was. You know, was he an unpleasant man? Doubtless, a lot of the time, you know, but um, 
the, when it came to music, he was incredibly serious. And um, to go back to the theme of the book, he was obsessed with jazz, and especially with uh, horn players. The first record he ever put out on his own label was uh, uh, Coleman Hawkins, I mm-hmm. think, you know, and it's like, um, he just, uh, I think those were the only heroes he, he, he ever had, you know, were, were jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at the at the end of the uh, well, the, the the end of the book is um, the the essay um, about Prince, and you say in the the intro that because it's a, it's a, a tremendously sad essay. The end the ending of the essay is quite is you know it really sticks, and um, and you say in the intro that you kind of wish that you um, had been able to you know maybe include other artists that fit with this kind of affiliation around the kind of commingling of of black and white musics and and the idea of home and you talk about um Solange and Lana Del Rey and I'm just really curious what you you know what you'd have said how they fit in with this kind of idea well I mean I wouldn't have just jemmied them in just in in order to you know there were two things what one of which was Prince thing was sad you know it was uh, much much sadder than I um I anticipated mm. I think for all kinds of reasons uh one of which was I hadn't realised how much my life in the 80s was in, intermingled with his. It's completely and utterly intermingled with that music. I mean, literally, I can date my entire life in the 1980s according to Prince songs. Um, and obviously it is sad, you know. It, something went wrong very early on, I think. I mean, it's, it's easy to think it was late on with the drugs, but I think it was much earlier. Something went deeply wrong. I don't know if anyone knows in Nicholas Rogue film Eureka, but uh, where he discovers gold, Gene Hackman discovers gold early on and then doesn't know what to do. Mm. It's like all that leftover time to kill. And he, you know, and reading between the lines, I think that's what happened with Prince. Mm. I think he had a fantastic uh, life in the early 80s, middle 80s. And then he got this success and it wasn't what he wanted. It wasn't what he expected. Something went uh, really wrong. And obviously for, for the end of the book, you'd like to have a, an essay which would point to the future and say, well, race in America has changed, there's hope, there's, you know, you know blah, blah, blah. Um, which I would have liked, you know. And um, I also had an essay on Nina Simone that I nearly put in the book, but I thought that would be over-egging over the despair and melancholy. <laughs> I mean, beautiful and sublime as she is. Mm. I, I, she, and also, there are no women in the book, which is mm. re- regrettable. You know, I thought about Nina Simone, and I thought about hurriedly doing some gesturing towards Billie Holiday. But again, a- according to my economy of the day, I-, I couldn't do that. I'd have to do something proper and serious and um, respectful. Uh, so the-, the thing about Solange and, and Lana Del Rey, um, especially Solange, uh, was just... To, to leave a mark that, you know, I, I am still listening to stuff. <laughs> I'm not listening to A. Uh, and B, um, they are astonishing. I mean, um, uh, in the last few years, you know, voices that have made me cry, Frank Ocean mm. uh, and uh, Solange and Lana Del Rey. Uh, although Lana Del Rey was more like falling, fainting to the floor and banging my head. 
but right. not for necessarily the obvious reasons. It was yeah. more like someone had designed this by committee for me. Yeah. It was almost too suspiciously mm. good. Yeah. It, they put noir in and they'd put Phil Spector in and they'd put this in and that in and it was these lines. Oh, you like the bad guys, honey. Is that true? You know, <laughs> it's like, what am I going to do? I'm helpless. I'm yeah. helpless. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. more like Solange. It's um, the voice is just, uh, you know, astonishing. Um, don't touch my hair and cranes in the sky. Yeah. Just, you know, literally play them on auto-repeat all night. And with Frank Ocean as well, you know. Um, uh, Frank Ocean is, is perhaps even more fascinating. You know, he's, he's, he can practically sing anything. And mm. I'm just... I mean, Solange is interesting because I've had a problem for 10 years with her sister because she's... Again, she's... <laughs> Let's stop tapping at the window, woman. No. In that nighty. In that shorty nighty. No, the problem was... Uh, the, the problem was... She's, Beyonce is fascinating. Obviously, any journalist, if you said, who, could, who, who would you interview tomorrow? Mm. Say, Beyonce. Beyonce, Natch, yeah. Fucking fascinating. Uh-huh. But... I don't know. The music leaves me cold. It's uh-huh. like it was made by a bot. It was like, yeah. it, it, you know, made by committee. And if you read the sleeve notes, it was made by committee. You know, yeah. 18 writers, yeah. 15 producers on each song, yeah. you know. Yeah. And even the songs where she's supposedly passionate about something, I don't... Is she really? Yeah. I'm just left completely cold. Whereas Solange doesn't have a voice. She doesn't have that classic, mm. booming R&B voice like a sister. But the minute I heard those songs... I completely done in you know it's like she's got something in the voice that you know to me works whereas mm. her, her sister doesn't which is what you were saying earlier about the, the politics of economy is interesting because why should a weak voice be more powerful than a powerful mm. voice it's you know it's something to think about and you know write about in the future mm. definitely yeah this um the, uh, Thinking about the the effect that Lana had on you, of um, oh. I mean, not all the effect that Lana had on you. Probably we've turned into Pete and Dud here. Yeah, you? we have. <laughs> Sorry, it had to happen. No, but I'm talking about this thing of this is for me. This is made for me, right? That you know, the, the whole book is well. One of the organising principles of the book is this idea of home, but it's not like a homey home. It's not like. A, a very comfortable place and it's not even necessarily a place it feels to me a bit more like it's a sort of way of attaching to the world and and it's music that provides that and it, that feels like the sort of same sentiment oh this is this is something that is for me well there's two or three different levels to that because if you look i hadn't even realized again like the autobiographical effect mm. i hadn't realized that in each essay there's a different thing about home like even in the john fay one which um there's a thing about him coming out at a late stage with this tale about his father abusing him, yeah. even though he had this supposedly idyllic American childhood. You know. And um, the mother uh, occurs again and again. Again, someone pointed out to me. I had yeah. uh, Charlie Parker, Frank Sinatra. Um, it's the mother again and again, yeah. who, and Elvis Presley, who uh, pushes them, who, who fashions the life, partly in... At that time, because they couldn't have a life of their own, in a sense, so they they um, inhabited uh, this uh, other thing, and it's uh, and I identify with that to an extent, you know. And again, I'd say I wouldn't 
why would I do a memoir? Why would I do an autobiography? Mm. But, you know, I, I didn't have a, uh, a home. My, my family were originally from Glasgow, but I grew up, they were an REF family. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, there wasn't a hometown. You grew up all around. Uh, um, and uh, in the 70s in Norfolk, we were on an REF base. My mum worked in this shop and um, got to know this uh, uh, black American uh, pilot from uh, who came in and started... She mentioned one day casually that I, I liked... R&B and mm. stuff and he started bringing in all these uh, X jukebox 45s for me all these blues and R&B and stuff that I'd never heard before mm. and uh, you know I, I had no idea who this guy was or anything but that was when I was about 13 or 14 or something. he completely turned my head around you know like pre-punk punk you know mm-hmm. these incredible um, uh, records which in a lot of cases weren't that well known you know they weren't Stax or Motown or anything they were kind of deep south soul and stuff almost like the equivalent of rockabilly you know and got them home and played them they were so raw yeah. and rough and mm. you know but at the same time really elegant and poised and um, that completely changed my conception of, of music at that time mm-hmm. but it was their home it wasn't my home but yeah. we'd somehow come together in this no place in the middle of Norfolk, uh, which is <laughs> which is saying something because Norfolk has got a lot of no place. Uh, Norfolk, yeah, yeah. Take your pick. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's um, there's. I think it's a, a bit of the book where you're describing um, looking at a photo of Charlie Parker, and there's a quote where you say, um, "Sometimes I think we might discern more of the true story if we blur our eyes and dream a little," and. It struck me reading the book that so much of it is, I mean, it's less focused on, you know, the, 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 the sort of what really happened and more about sort of trying to conjure uh, m- certain mood states or, or feelings. It's quite poetic. I mean, we've mentioned the, the end of the um, essay on Prince, but particularly that. And I wondered how important that was to you, that sense of, like, blaring the eyes and it, it not being this sort of... Uh, tick box exercise in, 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 in sort of dates and places and more about trying to conjure a mood. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying before about the great lost book in the 80s. Um, uh, that was an attempt to... I mean, at the time, you know, in the 80s, when I was young, um, and there was so little to read. I mean, there was nothing in Britain. I mean, it's like the idea that Martin Amos was the most radical thing you could find you know and uh there was no great i didn't know where to go you know and it was the first stuff that excited me was french stuff mm. and uh, like roland Barthes and everything it was the, and at the time i wasn't i'll admit i didn't know what they were talking about a lot of the time but it just seemed so uh it seemed like a really exciting way of looking at the world and sexy mm. as well and kind of um there was no equivalent of that and then on a trip to America, I discovered people like Joan Didion and other um, American writers. And, uh, and I just wanted to, I wanted to read. It's like I wanted to write a book that I wanted to read. Mm-hmm. It's like I wanted to write something that, were, you know, that, that was the equivalent of their work, but about music and song, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there was a, a Lorca book as well about deep song. Yeah, there was two or three books that were really important to me, Julia Kristeva and Lorca and so on. So I 
started writing this book about the voice and song. And as I say, I think about, you know, eight or nine people in the world would have got it. And it was really self-indulgent. And, but it was like poetry more than mm. music criticism. Mm. It was like, and it was like trying to imagine what it was like to be Billie Holiday and stuff. It was wildly overambitious and, and uh, what would be called pretentious, you know. But that's, I think that's what you do when you're 20, mm. in your 20s, you mm-hmm. know. But down the years, I suppose, what I've tried to do is refine that into a form in which anyone can read it and it isn't it's not um show offy and it's not um a hidden behind five uh veils of reference you know mm. that and that what you said the reaction to something like the sinatra essay it, hopefully i'm succeeding you mm. know that people can listen to the voice and hear that that stuff because yeah. uh, for a time you the, the words um Notorious and infamous were attached to your name, weren't they? Because you were smuggling uh, continental theory. Smuggling? I deny. <laughs> you were smuggling. No, oh, you mean right, yeah. the continental theory? Thing. Nothing else. <laughs> um, I wonder, like, I wonder how you how you look back on that sort of preposterous. The, you know the the idea that that you should be infamous for for trying to get preposterous, my lord. No, to, uh, for trying to get Chris Deva into an album. Yeah. Like, do, do you do you look on that as like? It, well, it was enormous fun. I think that's what got, gets lost. It was incredible mm. fun. It's a bit like pop art. You know, it's like um, finding these objects and you know making them uh, or collage or whatever. And um, uh, yes, it was glib. Yes, it was show offy. Um, but, you know, I was very young. I'd never been to college. It's like, which was an advantage, I think, because you could let these things off, these quotes like fireworks, yeah. you know, at the end of the night. And mm. I, it was flirtatious. Mm. And yes, but there's a great <laughs> Gore Vidal um, uh, thing where he's talking about Richard Nixon. And uh, Richard Nixon reviewed this biography of another American president. And uh, Nixon said, whoa. <laughs> Oh my God, I going to do the impersonation. You should definitely do the impersonation. <laughs> I never realised he was so sly and devious. And he said, and I mean those words in their very best sense. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd say the same about me. Yes, yeah. it was glib and show-offy, but I mean those words in their very best sense. You know, it's like... <laughs> I think it's a really good point to open the floor to questions. <laughs> After that impersonation. Uh, so <laughs> the only one I do. Uh, it was a great one. We appreciated it. Um, if anyone has a Big question... Big fan of Richard Nixon. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Just a thing to say to an LRB audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, if anyone's got a question, stick your hand in the air. And we've got a roving mic. Put your hands in the air. There's our roving mic. Uh, I think first hand was over here. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello. Hi. Is this on? Yeah. Um, thank you so much. It's so wonderful to meet you in person. I must say, um, after I read the, the Bowie piece and every piece of yours I've read since, it kind of had the same effect on me as Lana had on you, um, that it was made for me and um, so forth. I'm married. <laughs> um, I've always looked forward to your profiles as being like kind of final words, a very definitive. Well, never like final words. I'd always read more about Kate Bush or so forth. But I loved like just the time you put into it and so forth. And I wonder, especially with the Prince piece being the most recent one you've published and so forth, like how do you know in a sense when you're when these pieces are done for you or... when the editor tells me it's, <laughs> it's <true>. deadline. <laughs> you do you ever have any problem no, with that? It's true actually. I mean it's been getting worse and worse. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean um the Prince piece was uh, extraordinary in that sense, but um I mean, the other ones take months and months, but uh, and the Prince one took a lot longer. But um, it's uh, sorry, I've forgotten the question. What was it about the length of it? Why, how do I know when it's yeah? It's difficult um, because the way I write pieces isn't kind of A to Z beginning. It's more like a, a film editing a film, and sometimes I'll have the beginning and the end. I mean, that was true with the Bowie piece and the Prince piece. I had the beginning and the end. Uh, uh, but I didn't have the middle. Um, <laughs> and in both cases, I still don't think they're finished. I'd, I'd still like another few weeks, a few more months. It's, it's, a lot of it's to do with the rhythm of it, to be honest. And um, uh, it's, you know, there's a compromise between what you'd like to do and what, what the format and context is also. Um, and I'd also like a lot more white space sometimes between... You know, because again, it's a sense of rhythm, um, and uh, in both the Bowie and Prince cases, uh, the pieces were almost like uh, it starts out really full of life and ends up in this really melancholy uh, twilight state. You know, and you've got to find the rhythm, the bridge to get from from there to there. Mm. And um, uh, I don't know. Sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not so much. Um, a good example of that is um, I almost meant to dedicate this evening to uh, Robert Frank, the mm-hmm. photographer who died, uh, who I was a big, big fan of. And uh, I wrote a piece about him once, and it was, it was all snaps. It was all paragraph, white space, paragraph, white space, paragraph. But there was a, a very specific rhythm to it and how it ended at, at the end. And ideally, I'd like to do that with all pieces, but, you know, um, obviously there's a, in the sense of economy, there's, in the ordinary sense of economy, there's a problem here, because (laughs) you can't take five years on a piece, which is, you know, I need to make a living as well, so if there's... uh, if there's anyone out there wants to sponsor me, if there's any millionaires out there, yeah, yeah. patron. I, I, I'm a big fan of the 16th century, yeah. and uh, you know, <laughs> we all do. I yeah. would really like some, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thanks. Thank you. Can you, uh, you said music writing improved. You thought in the last decade or so, and I just wondered how you thought it improved and what might be behind that. Um, I think that's a huge question. I don't know. Mm, improved. <laughs> 
Yeah, there is. There's a lot of really good writing, but all sorts of... I mean, for a start, there's uh, so much, many more books. And it's fascinating. When I was obsessed with music in my teens, you know, I would buy anything, you know, but there was nothing. There were no books. It was very odd. And if, if you go back to that time and look, you know, in The Guardian or The Times or whatever virtually nothing you know and if it was it was treated as a kind of little oddity uh you know a little corner in the arts thing you know then skip to the 90s or 2000s and um even the front of the daily telegraph has you know it's like oasis and Blur, that was the famous you know uh, so obviously the culture at large has changed uh and um there's a lot lot more books obviously there's a lot more biographies and there's a obviously there's uh, academic books as well, you know, and um, just on every single uh, aspect, there's, there's a lot more to. And um, the complex part, I think, is why so much of it well, is about the past. Why is it about, why are we obsessed with, you know, and in my own case, it's like uh, almost in my own lifetime, music and the writing about it has been born peaked and died almost and then at the moment is kind of struggling to be reborn again um and the past is a very strange place you know it's like and if you have the time to look at it properly you can discover all sorts of stuff you know it's not just music you know one of my own interests is about surrealism and stuff you know and pop art and if you i've spent the last five six seven years looking at that as well and it, there's so much I didn't know, you know, there's so many artists I didn't know, so many odd things, you know. But then there's the problem, what we were talking about, Lana Del Rey and Solange, mm. you don't want to be just talking about the past. You, mm. you need to find a way of, you know, bringing the future into it. And uh, I'm not sure, I mean, I, I, I haven't solved that, but it is a... It is a huge question that someone online said about my book that it was great but it was like a luxury tour of a cemetery which I think was meant as a, a criticism but I kind of liked it there's, there's no there's no point in denying it you know it is in a sense you know except I would hope uh, it's not glum you know and that, that melancholy that that suggests I, I would hope that it was there was a lot more um, light there than that but um, there is a thing at the moment where people are obsessed with the past mm. even the recent past you know and um, I think I say in the book in the intro that the best books I've read recently were books about blues and early 1910 1920 I've read a series of books that are just fascinating because what you thought you knew what you thought was true ain't necessarily so you know it's it's uh, One here. Um, I love the book, Ian. It's absolutely amazing. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, I was, uh, it's something that you said, I think, in the book and also on one of your recent podcast interviews about your obsession with the voice and how I, I think, it, with the exception of Charlie Parker, I think the rest of it is an obsession with voice. What, some, something else you, you mentioned, I think it was on the Word podcast, was, was this thing about how some music grows with you and some doesn't. And you were talking, I think you referenced, say, Bunky through in the Egg in the Stooges album, yeah. how you can't really go back to that, and it was in a certain place. But That's certain new. albums, I think you referenced Miles Davis's Kind of Blue and Steely Dan, and how these records do grow with you. 
what what would you say it is about certain music that that does that for you? Well, I mean, you were saying it was about the voice. Um, I think within that, you'd say it's about tone. I mean, even Miles and Bill Evans and, and Charlie Parker have a voice. Well, well, there's a technical term, voicings, in jazz, but there is soundings, voicings. It's, again, what I said earlier about too much music writing in the past being about lyrics mm. and what the great author thinks, you know, and meaning. If anyone spends any time with musicians, you'll soon realise they don't give a f- about meaning. They have their own language and, and, and it's, it complete, it's about feel and tone and if you spend time with uh, or if you learn to play even badly you, you learn that music is a different language and it's about the, a tone can have a feeling you know, as yeah. much as uh, a lyric uh, personally, like for instance to give a completely random example uh, about ten years ago I found this CD in a charity shop, uh, Leo Ferre um, French singer, you know, and I, I don't know why I bought it. It was a double live. I don't like live albums. I wasn't. I don't. My French is sketchy. I can read it much better than I can talk it or hear it. But I took this home, and it was a double live CD made when he was in his seventies or something, you know. And uh, I, I had no idea who he was, no idea what he was singing about, or only a very rough idea. I put it on. And, you know, two minutes into it, I was putting floods of tears, you know, which is not unusual, I don't think, with, with singers. I don't think it necessarily matters, this idea what they're saying affects you. I think in general it's much, much more something about the tone of, of what they're saying, you know. Or, a, no, a combination of the two. I mean, as it happens, the song he was singing, I think, in his 70s, was uh, Paris, I No Longer Love You. And he goes through this song saying, you know, I used to love you and I no longer love you and goes through this long list of why Paris is a fucking hideous place to live now compared to... And then right at the end, it, he turns it around and talks about politics and, and young people and think, well, maybe it's not so bad, maybe I do still love you. But, you know, but there was something about the way he sang it that just completely floored me. And I think partly the subtext of that, what you were saying, you mentioned the Stooges, is to do with ageing and about how we age and how we live with stuff. And, um, you know, I think, I think there's a line in the book about uh, someone criticising Sinatra. They say, well, you know, it's the same, singing a song is the same in your 20s. as it is. It's not, it's not the same. It's completely different. The air is completely different. The mood is completely different. Um... And if you if if certain music does if you do live with it for forty fifty years obviously it's going to have some kind of uh, separate life I think um, completely yeah yeah you said something about you wish the Prince would revisit this yeah that was the problem I think because the rhythm went wrong you know you you get up to eighty eight eighty nine everything he does is fantastic and seems to reflect things that were going on in his life. And then at a certain point, he decides, no. And then he just sticks to one rhythm. No, I'm a black guy, I'm only going to do this kind of funk. And it's a huge lie to himself, most of all, I think. Uh, and it's like he pretended to stop ageing, and you know, into his 40s, 50s, he was singing songs about partying all day, and partying all night, and all this rubbish. And he wasn't. He never did. 
Mm. You know, and one of the strange things about Prince is this, you know, that sex imp, to talk about ta- in tabloid speak, I, I think a lot of his music is profoundly unsexy. In a very interesting way, admittedly, but you know, you'd need a Lacan to work out what was going on there, you know. But um, and to do with his voice, the way he played with his voice, and and wanted to be a woman half the time. I think it's really, really. But I think he scared himself with that. I think he started doing these experiments with his voice and his sexuality and everything, and it so scared him that he just never again. And so for the last twenty, thirty years, his. It's, it's awful, most of the... Yeah, no. yeah. So you, that's really complex because he couldn't just click back and do good music or click back and he'd been pretending to himself for so long that I'm not sure uh, what he could have done. I'm not sure um, there was any way out of it, really, um, um, except for the drugs, you know. Uh, I think the only chance was that... Uh, uh, I think the only chance is if he'd gotten into the drugs and allowed the drugs to establish a new rhythm. And, and um, unfortunately, I think he was taking drugs that were far too strong. But if he'd... I think drugs could have saved him. I know that's not a fashionable... <laughs> I do. I really do. I think he'd, he'd held stuff in for so long. I really think that... Um, it could have, uh, you know, if he'd gone away and had, you know, nine months in an opium den, whatever, it could have, but, but the way he did it was all wrong, you know, and um, deeply sad, deeply sad. Yeah. We've got time for one more question. Uh, over here, yeah. Sorry, going, going back to, to Prince again, um, in your essay in, in, in the LRB, you talk about some quite unpleasant uh, incidences after the death of his child and with his, his wife, Maite. And, um, and I, I just wondered, uh, were there any situations where finding out more about kind of your, your, your heroes and so on, your musical heroes, finding about the lives of them, if that in any way affected how you felt about their music? And then... Or that kind of goes into wider questions about um, how we reconcile kind of our personal moral values with the behaviour of, of the, the artists that we that we oh, love and, and what yeah. they do, and then how you kind of take the kind of willful blindness that's involved in fandom, and how those things all all, all fit together. So. Again, that obviously is a huge. I mentioned it in the John Faye thing as well, um, where you know he was, was dubious. Uh, towards the end of his life but um, the Prince thing um, I actually left out a lot of the worst you know uh, it was edited and a lot of the more awful distressing stuff was actually uh, left out Um, he well he converted to Jehovah's Witness and uh, you well whether he who's to say whether he it was genuine or whether he used it as an excuse for controlling people um, he was the, the whole episode of the child and uh, the death and the aftermath was really uh, appalling. Um, he would have left. He would have lost all his female fans if those details had come out. He was really uh, appallingly insensitive to to his wife in that episode. But 
you know, again, uh, not that it's... He was cutting off a part of himself. You know, he was, again, you can see it as a part of an art. He was killing himself. He was, he was just not allowing himself to feel. And how can you make soul music when you're not allowing yourself to feel, when you're not allowing yourself to feel pain? Or, you know, it's, uh, it's a very, very uh, strange episode there. But, um, uh, in general, of course, in the last few years of t- Twitter things and Me Too, it's become a m- much larger question of, you know, how much do we... Uh, and I'm not going to say anything more. Because <laughs> it will turn into a Twitter story. No, it's obviously a huge question. And I think if essays like this and uh, so on, uh, have any function, it should be to try and get the nuance and complexity and levels of this rather than, rather than the social media, you know, this is bad, this is good. Because everyone knows lives aren't like that. Everyone knows that marriages aren't like that. Everyone knows that, you know, ageing isn't like that. It's always really complex you know and um which to draw a circle back to the beginning is why i love you know bill evans and charlie park and frank sinatra and so on because uh they can bring up these issues they can suggest these issues with music that doesn't leave you depressed that doesn't leave you glum that doesn't but it still brushes against these um pains and uh you know longings in your life but uh, leave you feeling better going out than you came in which I hope the book does too yeah. oh, well perfect place to end summer sucky planned it I wish we've got to stop there haven't we Claire yeah should we buy some books and yeah before you do thank Jennifer Hodgson Ian Penman thank you so thank much you for, for being here thank you very much thanks for listening To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.